This episode of Talk Your Book is proudly brought to you by Spirit Technology Solutions. If you do business, do it with Spirit. Fundies called me up, told me to take a look, but stay stubborn as bulls and talk their own book. Get the money, get the money, get, get the money. Well, Harley Grosser, thanks very much for making it. Talk your book. Debu, really appreciate you coming on the show. I just thought it'd be a good place to start by telling us a little bit about Capital H Management and, uh, and how you guys look to invest. Sure, Chris. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Um, so Capital Age, we're a Sydney-based, uh, small-cap-focused investment manager. It's about $40 million under management, split across two funds. Uh, so the first fund started just up three years ago. Uh, we hit three-year mark this year. Uh, the Inception Fund, um, that's now hard-closed. Returns over those three years have been about 37% after fees, which has been pleasing. Um, it's now hard-closed a new investment, and we leveraged that to start up the second fund, the Capital H Active Fund, which started up in March this year. Uh, and we're looking to do that all over again. So basically what we try to do is we view the small cap and market market of the ASX as our domain. Um, we go through all of that, all of those opportunities. Um, we find the best ones. So we're looking for companies that are growing with tailwinds and probably most importantly, skilled and incentivized management teams that we're happy to back in a big way. We are a high conviction investor. We'll take big chunks in these companies if, if we can. Um, and we like to be along the ride for as long as those management teams are executing. And what stock did you want to talk us through today? So I want to talk about Moshio, code for that's MXO. And talk us through, what, what do they do? What's the helicopter view for them? Yeah, so Moshio operates in the, uh, the digital out-of-home market, which in a normal year, not affected by COVID, it's about a billion-dollar market um, per year. So in the industry, you've got billboards, displays, uh, and screens in airports, um, highways, medical centres, gyms, you know, anything you can, you can sort of think of. Um, at the moment, Moshio target three of those verticals. Uh, so the criteria to, to select a vertical for Moshe to operate in is that there's uh, long dwell time. So the audience is sitting there. It's not a short view. You're sitting there for a while and you have an opportunity to engage with what the content is to give you a better, uh, I guess, chance to sell to that, to that target. Uh, and also um, being in, a, they call it niche at scale. So we need to be in verticals that we can actually win. You don't want to play in the ones where the, the majors are, are just going to um, outdo you on cost or, or on size. Um, so, so at the moment, those three verticals are health, play, uh, and on the go. So health is medical centers. Uh, we're now number one or number two in that space. So about 600 mega medical centers defined by uh, a mega medical center would be you have five or six more offices of GPs in that clinic. Um, so through acquisitions, uh, they're growing pretty quickly to be number one or two in that space. Play or leisure um, is indoor centers for soccer, basketball, cricket, things like that. Uh, and the final one is on the go, so convenience. So at the moment, it's, um, it's in uh, petrol stations for Ampol or, or the old Caltex. So that's the current model now. And how much room to grow is there within those three verticals before they start to exhaust their, their growth profile? Yeah, it's substantial. I mean, the way I think about it, um, you know, this is still a small company. And, and just to give you a bit of background on that, it used to be called XTD. Uh, so we, still, we do still have assets, uh, cross-track assets, which are two um, two locations in Brisbane and Melbourne train stations, the large digital displays, but that's from the previous strategy. Um, and that cash flow has really been used to fund what's the new strategy for the new MD, um, Adam and his team, um, over the last two years. So that's now viewed as non-core, but the cash flow has funded our growth for acquisitions uh, in, this new, in this new path. So if you sort of take a three or five year uh, time frame, we think they can do sort of three to $5 million EBITDA in each of those verticals. It's yeah. three, like I said, at the moment. 
Um, the important part is the back end. It all plugs into one back end. So when you go into a new um, vertical, there's not a whole lot of CapEx cost to, to run that. And when you own, and I'll get into sort of this model a little bit later, but when you actually own the assets, the screens, uh, the margins are really attractive. So I would view it on three to five, three to five year time frame. Uh, you'd want to see Moshe doing three to five million dollars EBITDA in each of those. And in a three to five year time frame, would you expect other verticals be, to be lumped in there as well? Yeah, for sure, for sure. As long as that fits that criteria, um, I think that's that's where it makes sense. So um, we'll get into sort of the, te- the, the business model and technology later. But for it to all work, they need scale. Uh, so it doesn't make sense to just spread too thin. You build the scale in each vertical that makes sense. Try to win in that vertical. Uh, and when you do, if we can find another one, largely through or most likely to be through acquisitions, we are quite an aggressive um, acquirer at the moment. That's part of the reason that we took a big position in the, in the company. Um, then I'm pretty certain that at some point you'll see Moshe push into new verticals. And so talk us through their current position. What's their market cap? Uh, what sort of revenue numbers are they doing? How much cash have they got in the bank? Sure. So the market cap's about 20 mil at the moment. So it is a small company. Um, just to take a step back, you know, we... In terms of capital H, these are sort of the structures that we really like. We've had a little bit of success in backing small micro cap. Um, some will call them roll-ups, but it's a bit more strategic than just a roll-up. But companies that are you know tightly held with really good invest uh, managers that have the right incentive structures um, and backing them early on that path. Obviously, there are some you know well-structured deals you can do as a public company, so we like that model. Um, so we are getting in early. It's a $20 million market cap. They've got about $4 million of net cash. They are profitable already, which is really important. Uh, because once you're profitable, we sort of remove the need to keep raising capital and that can be dilutive. They're now self-funding. Um, that doesn't mean we'll never raise money again. They will, but it'll be for an acquisition or for a positive reason to, to fund um, growth. In terms of revenue, it gets a little bit, um, not confusing, but it's important to break it out. So we do have those non-core cross-track assets. In a normal year, that, that's the business that was hit by COVID. But in a normal year, that would do sort of $3 million of, of revenue. Uh, the MD, Adam, did a presentation recently where he said that I guess the goal would be for um, in FY22 or the 12 months from now to do at least double that amount, but purely from all the new business ventures. Um, I think you'll find eventually that that non-core business will be exited. And if you're an investor in Mosho now, you need to be looking at all the new stuff they're doing. Uh, but that kind of gives you a bit of an idea of the sort of uh, revenue growth they're doing at the moment. I think that's conservative. I think the team likes to or would like to build a reputation for under-promising and over-delivering, um, but that's probably a good base for investors to, to work off on their expectations and, and coming into the stock if they do their research. Uh, but that will be augmented very likely by acquisitions because, like I said, there are quite a, there's a long list of, of targets and that's a key part of the, the growth plan. And would you like to see them take on some debt now as part of those acquisitions or you feel using up their existing cash balance and, and some equity as well should be enough to, to fulfil what they're looking to do in that space? Yeah, I think using debt makes sense for a business like this because when you own a, um, uh, I guess, a network of screens, it's quite a highly cash-generative, stable, recurring revenue business. And when you're at scale in, that, in the media ownership piece, which is one of their, their revenue lines, 50% of our margins is, is pretty standard. So there will be a time to bring on debt to fund some of those. It just depends on, on what we're sort of buying. So there's sort of a broad list of different targets at the moment and um, they all fit the criteria, but they're all a little bit different. Um, maybe Mercer is not quite at the point yet to take on to take on debt. I think we've got enough cash there. Uh, we've got listed vehicle to use script at a premium like we did with the last acquisition um, to, to sort of fund the immediate term deals. 
my input or my preference as a now a director on the board is to always structure it so that we never need to come back to the market or we're never desperate for the cash. So that's when you get fund managers like myself that usually look at it and say, great story, but I'll come back in when you do a race. Mm. That doesn't help share price. So we've structured things so that we should all, always be able to be self-funding for these deals. So we do have a cash flow positive business um, and we have a lot of options, capital H. We also own 20% of stock, but most of the options as well, which are now well in the money and we'll be able to exercise those to fund any sort of smaller deals. Things about 800 grand that we'd have to inject if we exercise those and some other large holders have options as well. So I would say that debt is definitely a big part of that. And once we get a bit more mature, a bit more scale to the business, then um, bringing in debt will be really, it'll be nice to leverage the share price as well, of course. Um, but I'd say in the shorter term, some of the deals can be funded, you know, internally. And so it sounds like more traditional billboard businesses around digital billboards is going to be too big a market for uh, Modio to be a, a, a top two player, if you like, in, in the near term. What are some of the other verticals that you could see them becoming a, a relatively dominant player in going forward? Yeah, so I suppose the first, um, the first sort of goal is to dominate the ones that we're already in. Uh, and I think the health vertical is a really good example of how they've been able to do that relatively quickly, basically from a standing start. Um, so obviously they have the network of, of Helios Medical Centres and we recently bought Swift's business. Uh, so we've gone from zero to number one and number two, 600 medical, medical medis, mega medical centres pretty quickly there. Um, but then there's a, sort of a whole lot of work to then run that business the most share way. Um, so if you've, gone, if you've gone to, not to go on a tangent, but if you go to a medical centre and you sit in the doc's office and you wait for 15 to 45 minutes, and usually there's a screen up there that has the morning show or something on there that's, or, you know, even worse, sort of some sort of content that repeats every, every 30 minutes. It's not engaging. It's boring. Um, you're probably on your phone. You just want to get out there as, as soon as you can. So most shows whole, whole revenue model on this is to, is to have the content piece that actually produce the content uh, to then have the representation piece, which is selling the content onto a screen and then actually owning the screen. So if you can, if you can develop a, a model where you're uh, producing really high quality content, and have engaged customers, um, you can sort of really own that sector. So you go, and, and scale is really important to, to, to making this all work, both through all three, three revenue models, but also with some of the tech that they want to eventually roll out. So yeah, I would say that the, the large billboard space is, is obviously too big. We, we want to, like I said, I guess niche at scale markets that we can, we can win in. Um, there's no sort of immediate, I wouldn't want to give, you know, set industries that they're going to target yeah. Way, but but anything that fits that criteria of long dwell times, um, and that we can sort of find enough because acquisition targets to have scale relatively quickly to make it work, uh, then we could expand into into that space. And they talk a lot about the the big data they collect throughout their, their various centres. How do you, uh, I guess, rate that data collection when compared to more traditional digital media businesses? We have more insight around the eyeballs that are consuming the content that you do when you, you're dealing with. Um, people sitting there but haven't necessarily logged into something before they, they view the content? That's a really good question. So probably the key trend going on in the out-of-home sector that, that Moshio is well positioned for is the shift towards programmatic. So you compare it there to, you're comparing there to sort of an online business, Google or a Facebook and the, the very rich data they can collect. But another way to compare it would be to a billboard that's on a highway and has people drive past and see it 15 seconds and you know that there's X amount of cars seeing it, but you don't actually know for how long, whether they're looking at it, who they are. You can guess, you know, maybe they're, they're 
you know, a working age driving to work or they're dropping off their kids at school. You, it's, it's a lot of guesswork there, but you know a rough number of the audience. Whereas um, the shift of programmatic, so just, just to touch on that really quickly and that and hopefully answer your question by that way. I guess the traditional way of selling a big billboard would be a person-to-person transaction where I have a large billboard on the highway and I sell that to you for, let's say, $100,000 for a whole week. And your ad goes up there and you just assume that there's you know, enough people seeing it and you estimate that return. Um, the shift to programmatic is that you're actually able to go online the same way you would with Facebook or Google and you can purchase just through software, not through a human interaction, um, that ad for a 20-minute slot because you know that at that point, um, that's the market that you want to target. So it's actually the programmatic shift is converting uh, physical assets in the traditional out-of-home space to a model more akin to what you see online when you sell space on Google or Facebook. So for an old-school billboard that's analog, um, you don't get that data. But for a digital display, let's say in a medical center or in a gym, um, you know, that person might check in, there'll be Bluetooth on the sensor, is your data on that person's anonymized in the case of a medical center, but you can actually pick up quite uh, rich data on who these people are. And then that's obviously valuable to your uh, end customer who is the, the media buyer or the person who's advertising to you. So the advantage that Mosher have is because they're sort of being built from the ground up, the new MD came in two years ago and has spent this time, now we're sort of getting to scale. The larger players like a JC Deco or an O-Media um, have these legacy assets that are analog um, and they need to then spend the capex, that's the first piece, to shift to a programmatic digital display and then build up a network of actually selling, um, being able to sell on a platform. But the biggest issue for them would be that they actually cannibalise some of their revenue. So if I was going to sell a big billboard for $100,000 for a week, on a highway, I would sell it to a McDonald's and they would have that billboard for that week or for that month or however long it is. If I then divvy that up and say that that can be available to Christian and Best can buy that for 20 minutes here and someone else can buy that here, at scale and once I've got capacity on that on that asset, it's actually a whole lot more profitable. But getting to that point can actually cannibalize a lot of revenue because you've taken away that one advertiser and now you've got to split it up into however many, um, I guess, ad slots you need to sell. The advantage of most shows is they're building it from the ground up um, that way. They don't have any existing asset that they can cannibalize. They can move quicker, and that will actually disrupt the way, I think it will disrupt the way a lot of that media is sold. Um, like, as you said, they can't go in and do that in the large billboard market from day one, but they can find verticals where they can quickly scale up, like a health, like a play, and then start disrupting the way that media is sold, um, both to national advertisers, but also to local advertisers. So if you just want to you know, advertise um, your plumbing business or whatever it is, you can buy that ad slot. You can get rich data on who is seeing your content, how many people were sitting there in the office and, and watching it and engaging with it. And I guess the other piece that can add on top of that is the tech piece of, of how you engage somebody with that screen, how you engage them um, with the app that you might be communicating with, whether you're checking in at a medical centre and you're therefore communicating with the screen and that tells you you're up next and maybe you get some content on your phone. That's all other ways to enhance the experience, but also the amount of data you get, um, which enhances the value of, the content you're selling. And so is that sales process relatively automated for Motio or is it still the, the traditional business development type sales process? It's both. So there's still traditional, you know, BDM going out and selling, especially on a local level, like that sort of hard slog. You've got to, you've got to sell each ad spot to a, to a smaller local advertiser. But the rapidly growing piece is their programmatic piece, which actually doesn't have any human interaction. It's sold on a platform. Um, and you can, you know, buy the, the slot and the screens that you want for X amount of time, and that's sold for 
um, X price, the same way you would do it for a Google or a Facebook ad. Uh, and the idea is to build up that the richness of the content and the data um, so that you can you know, give more value to that person purchasing that. So at the moment, it's both. But I think you'll find that if they really get the strategy right, the programmatic piece will really take off. JC Deco are already shifting to that. So the, the big players are shifting. It's just that they've got, I guess, legacy uh, business models and revenue models to, to, to conflict a bit with that. So their ability to move quickly will be um, constrained. Whereas a startup, not necessarily a startup, but, you know, building from the ground up, you can structure it however you want. So. And in terms of other tailwinds, we live in a world now where you do check in, in well, I mean, it's the same most places around Australia, you check in everywhere you go now, whether it's restaurant, supermarket. And, you know, there's very few things more permanent than a temporary government policy. I think that's unlikely to change, you know, probably maybe ever. Um, but it will get automated. I, I doubt we're doing that manually in two years' time. I suspect there'll just be something that reads your phone or, or your facial, there'll be facial recognition tech that comes in. Do you think these sorts of technological changes we'll, we're seeing um, will provide a bit of a tailwind for something like MoShow where they can piggyback on some of the, the data that's already been captured and, and increase their data capture throughout as well? For sure. For sure, I think, I think there's no doubt. I agree with the, the comments you made there that that sort of process is not going to change. Um, if anything, it's going to be automated, which may be an opportunity for most actually part of that process. Um, but it's going to be driven by regulations or government. And, and you know, the more, the more automated, the more data, the more you can have, the more detail you can have on somebody who's checking in and the more you can follow everybody and where they go, which I know is another privacy question for a, for a different time. Yeah. But the more that happens, the more there's, um, the more value there is to a screen. So I think that programmatic shift is sort of, it, it's, and the MD explains it a lot better than I'm explaining it, but I'll give my best crack. It's sort of democratizing that market. You know, before, if there's a large billboard that was just a, a physical analog display um, and it sold for 100 grand, 200 grand a week, then only McDonald's or Coca Cola could afford that. But now, you know, if Capital H wants to put a billboard up and we can spend 10 grand, maybe we can buy that small slot when we know. Um, that our market is, is driving past or maybe a better example is in a corporate office space, you know, with, a, with an office tower of um, fundies and stockbrokers, um, then, you know, Chris Judd Invest can buy that time slot uh, of when somebody who's typically going to want to watch your videos is, is going to be there and walking past. So uh, if we can pick that up, if the, if the check-in system, you know, when they're coming to the office, you know more about them, then that's just going to give you more confidence to actually buy that media slot. And that's what Mercio is going to sort of thrive on. And just to finish off, talk me through, I mean, you've, you, you've touched on it before, but you're a director of Mosio, uh, you've got a 20% stake, and you're, you're obviously a, a fund manager as well. It's quite unique for a fund manager to go so deep on a stock, even when they do have conviction on it, um, you know, particularly becoming a director. What was your decision-making process around getting so heavily involved in, in an individual stock? Yeah, so it's a good question. I thought about it a lot. So I guess the first piece would be that, like I said, a sort of at the start, we have had some success in these type of patterns. A lot of investing is just sort of pattern recognition. You know, you find all the criteria. This looks very similar to an investment we made at this point, and that did very well. You know, that, that's how you sort of pick up you're in, you're onto something good. Um, and we've had examples like that with a 5GN or a Tesserant, uh, where we got in very early and we're able to ride that up. So it was a five or a ten bagger. Um, and some of those we've had sort of situations where we may have sold too early. You know, you, you go in and you say. I mean, for the three or five years, and then you make five times and you just think this is, this is too good. I'm going to sell my money, I'll, you know, get my cash out. Um, so part of it was the fact that 
we were able to take a position of 20%, you know, larger shareholder in Mosho, where it still wasn't, I guess, a, a bet the fund type size investment for us. That if we were going to take 20%, we were really locked in. So I thought we were on something really good and I didn't want to be tempted to sell along the way. So once you're locked in with a large position size, it then makes sense that you may as well become as involved in the company as you possibly can. Um, and they, they, you know, gave me the invite to join the board and I jumped at that um, because we can't sell anyway, right? So you may as well be in the, in the inside. Uh, you know, you, you, you get a feel and you think that management are good, but you don't really know until you're on the inside and uh, you're in the board meetings or they're, they're texting you on a Saturday night asking, you know, to do a call tomorrow, that sort of thing, which I love. Um, and that's what we found with, with the, the Mosho team. They are really high quality. Um, so that was one piece to it. The other piece is probably a personal decision of how I want to progress as an investor as well. And we've been quite active in our, all of our investments for the last three years across Capital H to varying degrees. Um, but that's what I love. That's what I really enjoy. I don't just want to be a, I guess, a fund manager that owns 50 different stocks and sort of plays the weightings. Or, you know, that, that's, that's a great model. And you can, there's really good managers. But what I really love is being involved, adding value, um, really backing the teams and, and, and I guess being part of that team. So it was an opportunity to come in and in all honesty, Chris, to learn as well, to learn from these guys, learn a new industry and provide the value that we could where we have our expertise. So I've seen a lot of these patterns over the last 12 years, a lot of these sort of companies that start off with a great opportunity ahead of them. And then, you know, sometimes they don't quite know the right steps or who to work with, whatever it may be. That's relatively straightforward stuff for somebody in our position because we've seen it before. If you can sort of guide them just to make the right steps along the way while they, they do what is actually the hard work of growing the business, then it's actually quite value-add. Um, and that comes back to things like structuring it so that we're always self-funding. We never go, need to go back to the market to raise cash just for working capital. You know, if we ever raise money, it'll be for an accretive acquisition, um, communication to market, bringing on the right share register. That's really important. So... This used to be, like I said, XTD, which had, you know, once a high-flying sort of history and the share price was much higher than where it is now, completely different business now, um, but you need to rebuild that share register. So that's almost done. There's one sort of large holder who's been selling for a while and this tiny little amount done and then that'll be sort of a, a big part of the turnaround as well. So just those little things that we felt we could add value on, we're going to be in for the long haul anyway and so it made sense to, to be as involved as possible. And so as a 20% holder and a director, like you touched on, you can't empty out on the, the retail holders. You may in all likelihood look to, to sell the whole company at some stage down the track. There'd be a nice clean exit when you've got such a big holding. What makes this company really valuable in five years' time to an acquire it is the technology around um, selling the, the advertising like you've touched on, is it the relationships with the different venues? Is it their ability to create unique content or is it a, a mixture of the above? Or, or what do you think has the potential with the secret sauce in this where a larger acquirer goes, we need to get that because we need X? Yeah, so I think it comes back to the shift towards programmatic yeah. and building yourself from day one to be as best positioned for that as possible. So that in three, four, five years when that market really kicks in and, and Mosher are already doing strong growth numbers and programmatic, but it's off a low base because it's just happening now. But if you can really, really leverage that tailwind and get to a level of scale where some of the other majors are still sort of trying to balance out um, how this new model might conflict with the previous model and you can build a business scale. So if we're doing, let's say, five to $10 million of EBITDA in a couple of years or whatever it may be, uh, then 
company like Jesse Deco might say it's easy to actually just buy somebody who's sort of custom made for this shift. Um, or, you know, there might be a sort of pressure in their own revenues that cover up that sort of loss to, to just to bolt it on. Um, so an O-Media or Jesse Deco might eventually become a, a natural acquirer if we can actually achieve a level of scale to make it, to make it worth that. So, yeah, that'd be, that'd be the plan. I think that's the, uh, the ideal exit for, you know, I guess a strategic investor like us when you take 20%. That's a while away, you know. I think there's a lot of, I think there's some really solid, no, no, I'm biased, but there's some really solid share price returns to come before that. You know, like I said, we've been in a couple of these sort of stories before, and when you get them right, they're not doubles, they're sort of five, 10 baggers, or hopefully better, fingers crossed. Um, but as long as you can make it work, then they can be really, really, um, really lucrative investments. So, but eventually, you know, we've got to, we've got to sell one day. So if that's, a, if that's the exit strategy, then that's, that's very fine by me. Beauty, mate. Well, I've, I've enjoyed seeing some of uh, your other positions that have gone absolutely berserk. So good luck with this one and uh, look forward to watching it from the sideline. Thanks, Chris. Really appreciate your time. Thanks, Harley. This episode of Talk Your Book is proudly brought to you by Spirit Technology Solutions. If you do business, do it with Spirit. If you're enjoying Talk Your Book, make sure you subscribe to Chris Judd Invest. Nothing you hear today should be considered investment advice. Please do your own research and seek out your own financial advisor before committing any capital to these markets.